pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. How many times have you had the experience of looking for something, looking everywhere, blaming somebody for moving it or hiding it, and then you find it right there in front of you, right? Right there on the counter, um, right where you left it, right there on the seat of the car, and you're like, how did I miss this? How did I not see this, right? Um, for those of you that are married, it seems like things just magically appear when your spouse walks into the room, right? Where is that at? And they come in like, oh, here it is, sorry. Um, John chapter 4 is all about missing what's right in front of you. And I want you to look at this passage of Scripture with me and see what it is that they were missing. First, we're going to see the Samaritan woman, what she was missing, what the disciples um, were missing. And we're going to pick up reading in verse 9, and, and we're going to skip over uh, several verses. This chapter, can't read it all. I encourage you to, to go back and, and read the whole thing. Um, but the conversation that Jesus has with this woman in verse 9, it's important for you to know that it happens in the context of Jesus is on a journey. He is traveling from one place to the next. And if you've ever been on a trip or a journey, and you just have to stop and take a break, that's where Jesus is at in this moment. We've seen Jesus talking with religious leaders, and we've seen him at a wedding, and we've seen him uh, at the temple. But this is just Jesus in the everyday, getting from one place to the next. Jesus stopping to rest his feet, sit on the edge of a well, wait for his disciples to get some food, and ask for a drink of water. And so when we read the Gospels, there are these powerful moments where there's this incredible setting, but there are also these powerful moments that happen in the mundane and the everyday. And wherever you're at right now, with your family, at your job, in your marriage, uh, this summer, whatever it might be, I want you to know that God wants to work in the everyday and the mundane, not just in the big moments, not just in the life-altering, life-changing moments. Um, Nicole and I celebrated our 15th wedding anniversary this past week. It felt a little anticlimactic since I was at camp, um, so we, we celebrated it separately. Uh, it's not ideal, um, uh, and so that, that was a big day, but I'm thankful for all of the days over those last 15 years that God has worked in our lives and drawn us closer and closer together. I could not do this without her. I'm so thankful for her. Um, Jesus is having a conversation in the mundane every day here, and that's where we're going to pick up reading in verse 9. Uh, John chapter 4 and verse 9. Jesus is asked for a drink of water. He's at this well, and this woman shows up. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, askest a drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? For the Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, and who it is that saith unto thee, Give me to drink, Thou wouldst asked of him, and he would have given thee living water. All throughout this chapter, people are going to be thinking on the natural, and Jesus is going to be trying to push them to think on the spiritual. The woman saith unto him, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Art thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well, and drank thereof himself, and his children, and his cattle? And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. 
But the water that I shall give him shall be in the well of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman saith unto her, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. She's still thinking in the natural. Make it more convenient for me, Jesus. And, and by the way, you might be coming to church and you might be coming to Jesus and you might be reading the scriptures because there's some stuff in your life that you want changed. You want Jesus to make it different. This woman saw an opportunity for Jesus to, hey, well, if you can make it where I don't have to make this trek, we have a hard time identifying with this because we have indoor plumbing. At least I hope most of us have indoor plumbing. And um, we just we go to the spigot. Right? You're thirsty in a moment. You go get a drink of water at the water fountain. You're thirsty here. You have to make a trek. You have to go. You have to take a journey. You have to carry it by hand. It's the inconvenience. And she's saying, well, if you could make things more convenient for me, that would be great. And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm trying to offer you something much greater than that offer you something far greater. So how does Jesus do that? Well, in verse 16, Jesus says, let's, let's get down to the nitty-gritty. Let's get down to what's going on here. In verse 16, he says, Go call thy husband and come hither. And the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband. For thou hast had five husbands, and he whom now is thy Thou hast is not thy husband, and that thou saidst truly. Now, just in the space of a few verses, we have gotten a glimpse into the brokenness in this woman's life. She's had five husbands, and the one that she has now is not her husband, right? Best case scenario, all right, the most morally upright situation here is that she's had four husbands who have died, all right? And if that is the scenario, that's still a lot of brokenness. And if she's had four husbands that have died, her fifth husband's like, yeah, I'm not, we're not tying the knot because I've seen how that works out for everybody else <laughs> who marries you. <laughs> so I'm not going down that same path. It just seems dangerous. And so for, that would be like best case scenario, but that's probably not the situation. Most likely she, she's had multiple relationships with multiple men. She's been unfaithful. She has, she's been divorced. She's currently living in an adulterous relationship. She says to Jesus, first off, I have no husband because here's a man she's met at a well, and she wants to make it obvious that she's available. And so there's some brokenness here, and Jesus drives right at it. He takes it right to this place of brokenness in her life. So when Jesus says, yeah, you've had five, and the one you have right now is not your husband, verse 19, the woman saith unto him, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And if you've ever had that moment where you're in church and, and it seems like the preacher knows everything that's going on in your life, you're like, who's been talking to Pastor Daniel, right? Who's been showing him my Facebook messages? Who's been, who's been showing him my mail? Um, she had this to an ultimate degree. She says, I perceive that you are a prophet. So what does, she, what does she say next? She changes the subject. Verse 20. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain, and you say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. And there's a whole lot of background here. But basically, the people of Samaria, they had been a part of Israel, and they divided out. And when they were conquered, people came in and took all of the Jews out into captivity, and those that remained intermarried with people who came in as, as their captors. And so for a Jew, the people in Samaria were kind of this half-breed, not-really-Jewish group. And because there was this animosity, the people of Samaria, instead of coming down into Jerusalem to worship, because who wants to go to a church where you're hated? 
they established their own temple in Samaria. And to the Jews, this is like, what are you doing? This is the temple. How dare you set up a competing temple? And so between the the Jews and the Samaritans, there is this racial tension. There's also this church hurt, religious hurt that's at play here. And when Jesus calls out her sin, that's where she goes. Well, let's talk about the difference between our two religions. Verse 21, And Jesus saith unto her, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither uh, in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship, you know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour cometh and now is, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the woman saith unto him, I know that the Messiah comes, which is called Christ. And when he has come, he will tell us all things. And Jesus says unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. And upon this came his disciples and marveled that he talked with this woman. In 1987, George Johnson wrote that scientists had found a brilliantly bright star, so brilliantly bright that it had the capacity or the brightness of 10,000 stars, so immense and large that its size was actually the orbit of the Earth. Now think about that. Our Earth orbits around the sun. One orbit is one year. And so the space that our globe travels around the sun in 365 days, that is the size of this star. It is humongous. But it is unseeable to our naked eye because there is so much cosmic space dust between it and us that the only way that scientists were able to see it was when they were looking through a telescope with an infrared lens. They could see the infrared heat signature that was coming through that dust. Here is this bright, amazing, beautiful, humongous star, and we can't see it because of all of the junk that is in the way. And what's happening here is Jesus is having a conversation with this woman, and she cannot see what is right before her, that Jesus is offering her the living water because of this junk that is in the way. What's on display is God's grace. God is showing us that he loves all. This is a practical outworking of John 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world, and that included Israel and Samaria in the uttermost regions of the earth. And that he came not to condemn the world, but that the world might believe in him. And so he has come that we might have grace. And when he travels to Samaria, this is on display. And so when Jesus talks with this woman, it's a big deal. Now, for us to read this, you say, okay, it's great that Jesus is talking to this woman. This is is wonderful. But we don't really pick up on the the nature of the setting and the context from this day and age because it's foreign to us. For Jesus to talk to this woman because she's a Samaritan, there's this religious and ethnic animosity. So there's a reason for him not to speak to her there. Culturally taboo. There's also just the distinction of the genders. Here is Jesus at a well by himself. The disciples have gone into the nearby village to buy bread, and this woman comes on her own. And so in a situation like this, it was not customary to interact with this woman. He would have 
gone away so that she could have access to the well by herself, but Jesus interacts with her. So there are these cultural, religious, ethnic taboos, and also the fact that she is a woman who has had five husbands and is currently living with a man who is not her husband. So in spite of her past and in spite of her place, in spite of of her sin and her iniquity, Jesus wants to talk to her. Um, Conversations with people and they'll say, Pastor Dan, you just don't know what I've done or you just don't know what I've been through. And you know what? They're absolutely right. I don't know. But when Jesus has this conversation with her, he does know. He knows about that. There is nothing that she can say in this moment that is going to catch Jesus off guard. And that's the reason he's able to maneuver through this conversation so deftly. is because all of the stuff that she's going to say, he sees it coming. He knows what it is that she's going to say. He's not caught off guard. When... I'm sharing the gospel with someone, and they're thinking, Pastor Daniel, if you only knew my past, if you only knew the things that I had done, I don't know your past. I don't know the things you've done. But Jesus does, and he's still calling out to you. And I think that's the reason that you're here. I think that's the reason that we're having this conversation right now. I think that's the reason that he's drawing you closer to himself. I think that's the reason you're still breathing. I think that's the reason that your life has been spared, because he knows what you've done, and yet he still is calling out to you. Jesus is making his journey. He's on a trek, but he has stopped at this well for a reason. It is not an accident. He knows that he's going to interact with this woman and have a conversation with her. And all of the details of your life and all of the brokenness and all of the bad decisions that you have made, God saw those things coming, and in the midst of all of them, while allowing you to make bad decisions and operate in your own free will, he is reaching out to you and calling out to you in spite of your past. And in spite of your place, um, I mean, just this week I was talking with someone and they were just telling me that, you know, here's what I hear a lot of. Pastor Dane, it's just in Indiana, the drug culture is just, Pastor Dane, Chandler, it's just, Pastor Dane, Wart County, it's just, and, and, and I agree that there are probably some things that are unique to our place in time and space, our location in culture and history. But if there was anybody that was in the wrong place, it was this woman. And Jesus goes out of his way to have a conversation with her and talk with her. And so the fact that you live in Chandler or Indiana or Warwick County or your street or your house or you go to whatever school, none of that matters. Your past and your place do not matter. Jesus is reaching out to you. It also didn't matter the position that she was in. And the scripture tells us here that it was the sixth hour of the day, which is noon. Because they counted their hours from sunup. And so here she is at the middle of the day. When is it the hottest? Noon, right? Now in Indiana, they could just, it, who knows, right? Because <laughs> that could just be when it's the wettest. Um, but typically, standard, in the Middle East, that's when it's the hottest. So you don't go to the well in the middle of the day. And most likely, she's at the well in the middle of the day by herself because she doesn't go when all of the other women go. Because she's a social outcast. She's a misfit. She's one that wants to do what she can to step out of the crowd, to be away from everybody else. She's a Samaritan. She's a woman. She's an outcast. She has no standing. 
I mean, think, think about the choices that she would have, the options that she would have in the life that she's living. This man that she has right now who's not her husband, maybe she doesn't really want to be with him, but she has no options, she feels like. How's she going to provide for herself? She has no standing, no status. And Jesus is talking to her about the living water. And what this passage should demonstrate to us is that it doesn't matter male or female, rich or poor, black or white, Jew or Gentile. The gospel is for you. The message of Jesus is for you. None of these things held Jesus back from having a conversation with her, and none of these things held her back from having a real conversation with her. It's interesting that Jesus has this conversation with her at the well because she is constantly searching for something to quench her thirst. She's tried five different men, and she's still searching for something to quench her thirst. Typically, we just spend our lives looking for the next thing that's going to quench our thirst, that's going to satisfy us, and we're just constantly disappointed. We're constantly going to wells that we find to be dry. And Jesus is offering her a living water that will satisfy her thirst for all of eternity, that she will never thirst again. It will satisfy her heart. It will quench the spirit, the soul thirst that she has. But to do that, Jesus talks about the junk in her heart. I, uh, I once heard Matt Chandler say, Jesus stays in his lane, but all the lanes are his. And there's no area of your heart, your life, your past, your background that Jesus doesn't have the right to walk into. And so Jesus, with this woman he's just met, asks her about her sexual sin. I mean, some of you would be creeped out if the first time that we met, I asked you a lot of questions about where you went to school or your job, or I got really detailed. Jesus says, tell me about your sexual sin. Let's talk about your immorality. He goes directly to where the need of her heart is at. And that's because Jesus in his grace will lay his hand upon the thing in your life that is keeping you from experiencing his peace and his joy. He will lay his hand on the junk that is between you and the brightness of his glory and grace. And I love that John captures this next part of the exchange because Jesus puts his finger on the brokenness of her heart. and He says, you have well said that you have no husband because you've had five and the one you have now is not your husband. And she swiftly maneuvers into talking about the differences between their religions. And she says, I see that you're a prophet. So let's talk about where the Jews worship and where the Samaritans worship. And what she does is she displays for us what happens all the time to this day. And if you work in ministry or you lead a group or you try to counsel people, you will find this all the time. As Jesus starts to get to the thing that is broken in us, we find some reason, some justification to say, hey, listen, I've got a little bit of a problem with the way you have a stance on that thing. And we use the divisions, and we use the doctrines, and we use the differences as a way to guard our hearts from the work that Jesus wants to do in us. 
And, and I am all for doctrine and truth, and we are people who stand upon the word of God here. I hope that you that has become very clear to you. But none of that should be a, a way for us to bypass the work that Jesus wants to do in our hearts. And if we're not careful, we will use that as, as a shield for the work that Jesus wants to do in us. We will use it as a shield to repel him reaching in and saying, hey, what's going on here? What's happening here? What, what's this shame about? What's this brokenness about? People will use church drama, doctrinal issues, imperfections in other Christians, imperfections in the pastor, styles of worship music. Use any of those things to put up this wall this barrier to keep the work of Jesus out. And what we have in our, in, our, in our nation right now is this epidemic of people who are just constantly going from place to place, never finding the church that really meets their needs. And the truth is, they're just not allowing Jesus to get in and wreck the damage that's in their heart and wreck the sin that is in there and clean all of that out. A few years ago, we went on a, a family vacation um, to the Outer Banks, and um, my, my parents had, had this uh, house in the Outer Banks that they had rented, and it had deck all the way around it on two f- stories. And my daughter and son were just running around with their cousins, and it was like the first or second day we were there, and my daughter got this massive splinter in her foot. And, I mean, what happened next was so legendary that my family still talks about how we got this splinter out and how brave my daughter was. And how that, like, she is screaming and we're digging at it with tweezers and everything. And all the other cousins are terrified, you know. And they're all going to wear shoes the rest of the week so they don't get splinters from this deck. And, and I did not want to take that splinter out because I enjoyed making my daughter experience pain. I wanted to take that splinter out because I wanted her to be able to run in her teen years. I didn't want it to become this thing that grew into an infection that caused all of this spreading problem. I knew that I had to get the splinter out or it was only going to get worse. And what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, listen, we've got to get this out. We've got to deal with this. And so Jesus responds to her question about the differences between their religions, but he brings it right back to you've got to worship the Father in spirit and in truth, and you can throw up whatever objections and you can throw up whatever questions, but you've got to come back to worshiping Jesus. So Jesus offers this woman grace, this adulterous Samaritan, he offers her grace, and there's this bright and beautiful supernova of God's grace on display right here. And his grace is so powerful and his mercy is so mighty that it comes like a flood into the junkyard of our hearts and sweeps away all of the debris and all of the scrap metal and all of the rusted out car bodies and he sweeps all of that junk out. And that's what he's doing here in the life of this woman. And this woman is missing the grace that's right in front of her. She keeps thinking about the natural and she keeps bringing her back to the spiritual. Keeps bringing her back to the sin that she's trying to keep hidden. And I I don't want us to be so focused on the natural that we miss the spiritual work that Jesus is trying to do in us. You know what the beauty of camp is? Is that so much of the natural is just stripped away so we can really focus on the spiritual. And this world will try to just constantly flood our schedules and our timelines 
and our minds with the natural so that we don't have any time for the spiritual. The second half of this passage is similar, except that instead of Jesus trying to get this woman to focus on the grace that he's offering her, Jesus is trying to get the disciples to focus on the harvest that is before them. Um, look with me, with me at verse 27. And upon this came the disciples and marveled that he talked with the woman. Yet no man said, What seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? And the disciples were like, What's going on? But nobody was brave enough to ask him. Right? 28. The woman left her water pot and went her way into the city and seeth, saith to the men, Come see a man which told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Christ? So she runs into the village and says, You've got to come see this man. And they're probably all like, Oh, great, another guy she's found. He told me all things that I ever did. Is not this the Messiah? And they said, well, we, this we have to see. So they're all coming out. In the meanwhile, verse 31 says, In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed him, saying, Master, eat. But he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Jesus is saying, I'm not hungry right now. My mind's elsewhere. I think, I'm thinking about something else. I'm not focused on food right now. I'm focused on the mission. Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him ought to eat? They're like, how can Jesus not be hungry? We, we didn't, you did, did you give him food? I mean, where did he get some food from? Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me, and to finish his work. Say not ye there yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your eyes, and look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is that saying true. One soweth, and another reapeth. I sent you to reap that whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And verse 39 says, And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him, for the saying of the woman which testified, He told me all that I ever did. If you look down at the end of verse 40, it tells us that he stayed there for two days, talking with and training and teaching these Samaritan people. What was Jesus saying to the disciples? They come and they say, Master, we've got you food. We've brought you the food that you, that you want. Here it is. And he's saying, I, I'm not hungry. How are you not hungry? Did you get something to eat? And he's saying, no, I'm focused on something else right now. That my meat, my food, my sustenance is to do the will of the Father that sent me. And that is the most important thing right now. And if you guys will open your eyes, you will see that the Samaritans are coming over the hill to see what is going on out here. He said, you think that there are just four months before the harvest comes. But I'm telling you, the harvest is right now. You're thinking about the grain that, that is sown in these fields and makes the bread that you just went and bought. But I'm telling you that the Spirit has been sown, and the gospel has been sown here, and the harvest is now. It's now. And you need to lift up your eyes and stop thinking about the food and start thinking about the harvest of souls that awaits us. Take your eyes off the natural and look at the spiritual. What is it that we're trying to do here? We're trying to do what Jesus called his disciples to do, and he called all of us to do. We're trying to harvest the, the fields that are here in Chandler. We're trying to harvest the fields in our, in our homes and in our families and in our community and in our schools and in our workplaces. And I believe that if we will look with spiritual eyes, we will see that the Spirit has sown the seed. 
of conviction and desperation and searching and seeking. People are thirsty. They are hungry. They are all around us desperate for something that is eternal, something that matters, something of significance. But we are too busy looking at the natural to see the harvest that is before us. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying the harvest is here and it is plenteous, but the laborers are few because we are so focused on these other things. What is it we're trying to do at Faith Church? We're trying to bring in the harvest that God has already been preparing He's already been working in hearts and lives. Do you know that an African impala can jump 10 feet in the air and can clear 30 feet of distance? But in a zoo, they're fenced in by three-foot walls. And the reason is that they will not jump to where they cannot see. If they can't see where it is that they're going to land, they won't jump. If they don't have a clear line of sight, if they cannot see it, they will not jump. For us, we don't jump, we don't act, we don't move, we don't speak, we don't say anything, we don't invite, we don't encourage because we can't see it. We're not looking with spiritual eyes. There have been times, especially in the past year, where I felt like I've really had to jump before I can see where I'm going to land. I'm sure that in your lives you can identify with moments that you've had like that. And what Jesus is doing with this woman and what he's doing with the disciples, he's trying to help them see what's right in front of them, the grace that's right in front of them, the people that are right in front of them, the needs that are right in front of them. At church camp, I have, a, I have the role of head counselor. At least that's been my role the last few years. And so I lead our team of counselors that they stay in the bunks with the students, and they have lots of spiritual conversations. Their primary role is to, to talk with students about their relationship with Jesus, to lead them in devotions. And uh, Eric leads the staff, and the staff makes the program of camp happen. And so they handle that so that we can focus on spiritual conversations. And what always happens every year is at the beginning of the week, there, there are these details that have to be worked out, and there's this problem and that problem, and there's this student who's causing us issues, and there's this student who, who's doing this thing and that thing, and, and, and behavioral issues and that kind of thing. And, and this year, we had very little of that. But that's where it always starts. But through the week in our, in our counselor meetings that we have every morning at 7 a.m., um, they, they come in and they start telling the stories that they've heard from these students and the things that they're going through. And what is broken at home. And, and, it, and there's a switch that is turned. And we look with spiritual eyes. And when we look at that student, we can see all of the things that are causing that behavior and causing that, those issues. When Jesus looked at that woman, he could see all of that brokenness. He didn't just see a woman in the middle of the day getting water from a well. He could see all of that. And when Jesus looked out into the fields that they were standing in, he could see the Samaritan people coming desperate for the truth. Why? Because he was looking with spiritual eyes. 
And I, and I believe that when we can see the brightness and the beauty of God's glory, we can see the brightness and the beauty of what it is that he has done in our own hearts. When we, we look at that afresh and anew and remember the difference that God has made in our own hearts and lives, we remember the brokenness and the junk, the, the, the scrapyard of rusted out metal that is all of our hearts and how Jesus came in and flooded all that and swept it all away. How can we not look into the fields with spiritual eyes? How can we not, like this woman, say, come see a man who told me everything about myself? Is not this the Christ? Is not this the one? Would you bow your heads with me for a moment? I want to give you an opportunity to, to just in this moment think about the time that Jesus came into your life and he, and he laid his finger on that brokenness in your own heart. 